Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives podcast, formerly Amanda's Wellbeing podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist. I'm curious about living a happy, healthy and vibrant life through learning from experts, practicing mindfulness and meditation, eating a nourishing healthy diet and moving my body, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll mention that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and it is never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Associate Professor Dr. Robert Ayli, a public health physician and specialist in addiction medicine based at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. Dr. Ayli has held numerous positions in organisations specialising in the treatment of drug and alcohol problems. Currently, he's a member of the Australian National Advisory Council on Alcohol and Drugs, a member of the Cochrane Alcohol and Drug Group Editorial Board and the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Panel on Drug Dependence and Alcohol Problems. Clearly, he comes to our conversation with an enormous amount of expertise and experience. Although Dr. Ali is an expert in relation to numerous types of substance addiction, including drugs, today our focus will be on alcohol, because the consumption of alcohol is widespread and widely accepted in Australia. Also, provided that certain conditions are complied with, such as minimum age requirements, selling and consuming alcohol is legal in Australia. During the episode today, we'll discuss the health effects of alcohol, both immediate and long-term. We'll discuss alcohol as an addictive substance and the public health approaches to reducing the risk associated with alcohol consumption. To put our chat into context, I'll share some statistics around alcohol consumption in Australia. In 2019, 79% of adults consumed alcohol and 21% of Australians aged 14 and over reported being the victim of an alcohol-related incident. In 35% of drug treatment episodes in 2017-18, alcohol was the primary drug of concern, making it the most commonly treated drug in Australia. Apart from its risks to health and safety, Alcohol consumption also has a social cost, such as productivity loss, traffic accidents and cost to the criminal justice system. In 2010, these social costs were estimated at a staggering $14.35 billion. With all this in mind, understanding more about alcohol consumption and its impacts on your health and society in general is knowledge worth having, so it's my great pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Dr Robert Ayli today. So before we get on with our chat today, Robert, I'd like to get to know a little bit about you. So let's start with some quick fire questions. Where did you grow up? Adelaide. Adelaide, like me. What is your favourite form of exercise? Uh, the gym. Uh, I like doing weights. Oh, excellent. And what do you do to relax when you're not working or at the gym? Uh, so probably I, what I like doing the most is enjoying uh, the parks that are around Adelaide, walking through them, just just connecting with nature. Yeah, we're very lucky here. We have beautiful public park system. 
Mm. Are you a dog or a cat person, or perhaps neither? Definitely a dog. I'm allergic to cats. Oh, okay. Asthma, so <laughs> that rules them out. <laughs> totally. And what are you reading right now? Uh, the Life of John Lennon. Oh, interesting. Right. Are you a fan? I mean, I guess you are. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, mm. I grew up in an era in awe of the Beatles uh, and um, it's just John Lennon was uh, such a, a remarkable person and to, to look at his life story is, is fascinating to see um, his troubled relationships and uh, how, yeah. how he evolved as a person. Yeah, very interesting. And your favourite holiday destination in Australia, and if we can dream a little bit, outside Australia? Okay, well, number one would be for me be Tasmania because for such a small place, it, it's so varied. It, mm. If you go to the West Coast and the East Coast, they are worlds apart. So I love going to Tassie. And for overseas, would would have to be Thailand. Um, oh, lovely. I've spent a lot of time working in Thailand and uh, lo- love the country, love the people. Yeah, I love the people there too. It's um, They're very warm people in general, I would say. So on to your career. You, why did you decide to study medicine? What drew you towards that? Um, my father was a pharmacist. And um, when I was a young boy, we used to uh, spend some time going in to visit him at work. And I just always had an interest in in the health side of the area. So Mm. it it was something that I was drawn to from a very early age. And then you went on to specialise in public health and addiction medicine. Mm. So what, what drew you to that area of interest? Well, it's a a long and circuitous route. Um, My interest in public health was in tropical medicine, Mm -hmm. and um, I um, was particularly interested in uh, dengue fever. And so I've done a bit of work in in Asia and (coughs) returned to to Australia. And at the time, there'd been a a Royal Commission, the Sackville Royal Commission, which had recommended amongst many things, a shift in addiction away from psychiatry towards public health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the psychiatrists in the state had left the area of addiction completely. And I was asked if I would temporarily step into um, uh, work at uh, Drug and Alcohol Services for what was going to be two weeks while they recruited somebody to take it over as a full-time job. So I, I never actually intended to go and work in the area. But this was 1985, and that was the year that Bob Hawke declared on national television that his daughter was addicted to heroin. Right. And Neil Blewett created the national campaign against drug abuse. And um, there was suddenly money, which had previously mm. was a neglected area, and there was intense political interest about wanting to do something about a problem that had been brewing but not really fully recognised. Right. And uh, I just got caught up in it and uh, never left. Oh, that's very interesting. So today, Robert, I'd like to focus our conversation around alcohol. As I mentioned in the introduction, alcohol is a drug that is widely available, it's legal to purchase and consume if you're over 18, 
and its consumption is widespread, with around 79% of adults in Australia drinking alcohol. First of all, what is alcohol in a chemical sense? Well, it's an organic compound. Um, the, the alcohol we drink is ethanol. So it's made up of three elements, carbon, hydrogen and, and oxygen. Uh, it's a very small molecule and it's uh, quite water-soluble. So it, it easily crosses the barrier uh, in the gastrointestinal system mm -hmm. and gets into the bloodstream. And from there, it very easily, because it's so small, crosses the barrier that the brain has to protect itself from, from uh, foreign objects. It easily crosses that and gets into the brain as well. So it's a, it's a tricky, devious little molecule. Right. So we will talk about that and the implications of that in terms of health. Um, but first of all, we often hear reference to standard drinks. And I think it's really important to point out what a standard drink is because the glass of wine that you might pour yourself in the evening with your dinner is most likely more than a standard drink. So could you explain to us what a standard drink is? Yeah, okay. So that, you're right. I mean, it's, um, standard drinks was introduced onto alcoholic beverage labelling by law uh, through uh, the federal government's decision that it was important that people had the equivalent to having a speedometer in the car, that they had a way right. of judging how much they drank and the currency that they decided to use was a standard drink, which is 10 grams of alcohol. So irrespective of what beverage I'm talking about, they've all got the same amount of alcohol in it, it's 10 grams. By law, on the back of the container that you buy, um, the number of standard drinks is written on it. Mm. Um, the industry was very reluctant to adopt and accept it, and so um, they made the print small and sometimes difficult to find, but it has to be there. Now, when most people, um, of course, when they're drinking alcohol and they may be drinking it at home, don't necessarily drink it in a standard container, and, and wine's a very good example. Mm. When we look at the way we pour alcohol, we pour, we pour proportionally to the size of the container for wine. Yeah. And people often, when they're pouring alcohol, will pour somewhere between 150 and 200 mils of wine. But actually, 100 mils of wine is a standard drink. So they're pouring between one and a half and two standard drinks. Mm. And um, we know that uh, for beer, um, it we know that there's different uh, potencies of beer, different yeah. concentrations of beer. So a pint of low-alcohol beer is a standard drink. Uh, but in South Australia, a schooner or on the East Coast, a midi of mid-strength beer is a standard drink. And for spirits, um, it's uh, a single shot, 30 mils, uh, is, is the 10 grams of alcohol. Right. Of course, if you're buying a cocktail in uh, a bar or, or a restaurant, you may not know what's being put into that container because they, they're mixing it for you. And yeah. I guess one of the tips that I would have is, ask them what they put in it because they know exactly how much alcohol they've put into yeah. that container. 
And a lot of times um, cocktails are sweet and so it disguises the alcohol. Yeah. You don't taste it and uh, you may, in fact, have three or four standard drinks in one cocktail. Yeah, I think the problem is that most people probably, to keep it simple, think um, in terms of one drink as in one cocktail is like yeah. one drink. And if you pour a glass of wine, which might end up being two standard drinks, in your mind you're sort of saying, oh, I've just had one glass of wine right. um, and make judgments based on that in, in terms of whether you'll drive and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting that the um, standard drink is actually quite small compared to what we regularly consume. And Another reason for that, I think, is that the, there's been a trend over the last few decades towards having these voluminous glasses because it looks kind of nice. But if you put a standard drink in those, it would look like a little speck at the bottom. So, Yeah, and that's where I think that um, one, of the, one of the major challenges uh, for uh, uh, us is to increase awareness about what a standard drink is. Because yeah, the, definitely. The, the point is, well, why, why is it important to count? Well, it, it's important to count from both uh, the risks of intoxication mm. but also the risks of long-term harm. And uh, that calibration, if people are underestimating their risk, it can have quite significant consequences for them. Absolutely. And as I said, we will come to that but first of all, we've talked about what a standard drink is. So what are the public health recommendations in terms of how many we should, con or not should, <laughs> um, the limit to the amount we could consume in one sitting, for example? So, so the National Health and Medical Research Council has just revised and updated our national guidelines for low-risk drinking. Um, the guidelines are quite clear that <clears throat> you can't eliminate risk, but, mm. but there's a threshold level which people might see as an acceptable risk. And that's a judgment call. The, the judgment was made that the, the risk to either short-term harms or long-term harms would be set at one in 100 for the risk of death or an adverse event. So mm -hmm. that's the, the probability, the likelihood of that happening. And uh, for a single occasion risk, uh, that's four standard drinks. Right. And for long-term risk to your, your health, uh, that's no more than 10 standard drinks per week. Now, that's for healthy adults over the age of 18. But, of course, they went on and looked at two other populations mm. that are also important. Uh, they looked at under-18s. The, the previous guidelines were a bit agnostic on it. They, they kind of accepted um, what is a Mediterranean tradition of introducing people to, to alcohol at a younger age yeah. as being potentially protective again, risks and harms from alcohol. But the evidence now shows that it actually isn't protective at all. Yeah. It may, in fact, be potentially harmful. Yeah, I've read that too. Mm. And the other group that they looked at was women who are considering pregnancy, are pregnant or are breastfeeding. Mm. 
And there we can't define an absolute low risk level. So as a precautionary principle, the advice is not to drink when you are thinking of pregnancy, are pregnant or are breastfeeding. Yeah. And I think um, speaking as a woman who has had three children, and this is, of course, anecdotal, your body does step in to help you in a sense because you just don't really feel like it. So do you think then that Australia has a drinking culture? What's your personal opinion on that? Well, we were founded on rum. The yes. currency of the the original uh, first fleet was in alcohol. Yeah. Um, three quarters of the adult population have drunk uh, alcohol. So the amount we're drinking, the way we're drinking, uh, is changing over time. And, and, in fact, younger people are less likely to be drinking now than the people of the same age two decades ago. And the total amount we're drinking is reducing over time. Uh, but uh, alcohol is a, is a big part of our culture and uh, it's something that uh, we need to be mindful of. Uh, mm. that, that is sort of, it's everywhere. It's yeah. something that uh, is potentially problematic. As you said, alcohol is a big part of our culture. So what are some of the reasons then that, you know, even if we know that alcohol is potentially not good for our health, why then do people drink? So what are some of the reasons? Like, for example, they might enjoy the taste. Okay, well, I, I think of it as, as the three Fs. The most common reason is they do it for fun, yeah. enjoyment. So it's a, a pleasurable experience, <laughs> and that might be the taste, it might be the company, it might be... A variety of reasons. The second most common reason is they do it to forget. And so that could be physical pain or mm-hmm. it could be emotional pain. So it's it's odd that it's the same substance, but we can drink to celebrate or we can drink to drown our sorrows. Yeah. And so those the, the alcohol has an indirect effect on um, the uh, opioids in our brain which are the pain killing nerve cells in our brain so it does that low dose alcohol does reduce pain physical pain but it may also block out emotional pain right and the third reason is function it serves some useful purpose that we we find uh and that that could be the person who um struggles to be sociable yeah Right, so they get anxious being around other people, and and what they find is that alcohol helps break down those barriers. It yeah. acts as a social lubricant, if you like. So those those would I think be, and then of course you've got the influence of your friends around yeah. you because if your friends are doing it, that becomes part of what you do as well. Yeah, indeed. If we move on and talk about the health impacts of alcohol consumption, <clears throat> let's start with what happens in the short term. So if someone consumes an amount that is, well, a small to moderate amount within the guidelines, what mm. happens in our body when we when we do that? It depends upon who you are. Sure. 
where you are and what your physical condition is. So men and women are slightly different, that uh, women being smaller size, smaller livers, and they have less of some of the um, enzyme that breaks down mm. alcohol in the, in the gut, um, their blood alcohol level rises higher uh, for each standard drink they drink than a male does. And the liver takes about an hour to metabolise a single glass of alcohol. So one drink, one standard drink in, an hour, and it's completely gone. So one standard drink will raise your blood alcohol level for a man about 0.01 and for a mm-hmm. woman somewhere 0.015 to maybe to 0.02. And at that, at that kind of level, uh, you become a bit more talkative. You, you feel a bit more confident. Um, you, you feel a bit more socially engaged. Um, but as the blood alcohol level rises, then some of its uh, effects on motor function yes. and thinking become more obvious. So you might be prone to flippant remarks. You might become a little bit more clumsy. Um, you're a lot more talkative. You might feel a bit lightheaded. So once we're getting up to that range where you really shouldn't be driving, the yeah. 05 level, um then you're starting to become a bit more disinhibited, a really talkative your coordination is is quite poor you may notice Mm. you're not uh, stable on your feet you start to make poor judgments you you do things that in hindsight perhaps I shouldn't have done that and then of course we get to much higher levels which are potentially quite risky and dangerous because Alcohol can, uh, at the very end, depress uh, brain function. Um, it can cause nausea and vomiting. Um, it it can be potentially life-threatening. But at those social levels, it's in some ways at low doses, it's an excitatory agent. Right. But the more of it you have, it depresses brain function. Right. And... There's a big um, conundrum in there, I think, because as you become more disinhibited, at the same time, your coordination goes down. So you might make, as you say, poor choices. Um, So you might choose to drive when you shouldn't because you're not thinking clearly, which is obviously a danger. Yeah, it's one of of the things that's the irony is that Mm -hmm. um, when, when you're intoxicated, your capacity to to have insight into the yeah. effect that it's having on you is diminished. Mm. So to everybody else who's not intoxicated yeah. around you, it is bleeding obvious, but to you it may not be obvious at all. Mm. Mm. So then if we move on to long-term alcohol consumption, I know that it increases the risk for disease. So could you talk to that, please, and tell us, which diseases it, it does increase the risk for and, and why that is the case? Okay, well, I guess that the, the big three that we always think of is heart, brain and liver. Um, the risk of liver disease is, is known to most people because that's where the, the alcohol is metabolised and it's having a, a direct toxic effect. Alcohol is actually a toxin in the body, so it affects every organ in the body, but some more obvious than others. Um, 
there is a great increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, so uh, in the short term and the long term, uh, things from atrial fibrillation, which is an irregularity of heartbeat, mm -hmm. right through to heart attack. And in the brain, um, while some people might be thinking about brain damage, which it definitely does do, so you can end up with uh, severe brain damage from alcohol, uh, it also increases the risk of stroke. So those would be the ones that I think people would be most familiar with. The ones that people are less familiar with is the risk of cancer. There are right. eight different cancers that are directly attributable to uh, alcohol consumption. All of them have a dose uh, response, which mm -hmm. means the more you drink, the greater the risk. And the one that probably surprises most people is breast cancer. Oh, is that um, right? Mm. Yeah, so uh, alcohol uh, is a significant attributable risk factor, which we would say in public health terms. In other words, it's, it's a recognised causative agent. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, I've got to drink a lot to increase the risk, but actually it's a direct linear risk. So for every standard oh, okay. drink you drink, uh, it increases the risk by 12%. That's so fascinating. It, I didn't know it's that. It's not something to, to take lightly and is probably underknown. Um, the other cancers are mainly related to the contact that it, it has directly with the body. Yeah. So everything from head and neck, mouth, yeah. throat, down through your digestive tract, right down to, to bowel cancer, um, but it uh, can also cause problems in the pancreas, uh, pancreatitis, uh, which is the organ that uh, provides insulin. So yep. it can cause uh, a diabetes um, and it can cause damage to your nerves in, in not just in your brain, but also in your body. So you can have problems with coordination and balance because you lose sensation in your feet. Wow, that's a, a pretty extensive and sobering list of diseases that alcohol can contribute to. On the flip side, we often hear about some benefits to consuming small amounts of red wine, sometimes referred mm -hmm. to as the French paradox. What's the prevailing wisdom on that? So that that's a really hot topic and... Mm. Um, and uh, I've, the most recent evidence, which has been a reappraisal, a different way of looking at old yeah. studies, but also new studies, have really drawn into question the benefits, the cardiovascular benefits, the heart protective benefits of small amounts of alcohol. Um, <clears throat> if they were there at all, it, it was only for middle age and it was only for one standard drink or less. Right. And it probably had a greater effect on men than women. But there's a different type of uh, research that's being, being applied now, which is taking out some of the uncertainty. A lot of the, the previous studies required self-report, whereas we're I now see. able to more accurately independently verify actual consumption mm. and uh, I think it's fair to say that um, I no longer have confidence that that benefit is real 
Right. Um, and I think over time we will be even more strident in our view on that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I imagine it must be hard to disentangle red wine consumption with the rest of the lifestyle that the person takes on. So someone who doesn't drink very much may also be someone who's likely to eat healthily, to to exercise and those things. And I know there are ways you can do this, but I, I think it must be hard to tease that out. Yes, there is. Mm. And, and uh, the new type of uh, epidemiological studies that are teasing that out, you're right, there are lots of other things that go hand in hand, um, but... Um, the, the contribution that alcohol might make to reducing cardiovascular risk, I think, has been overstated right. and misrepresented. Mm-hmm. And it's been overstated and misrepresented by an industry that has a vested interest in ensuring you believe that message. Yeah, of course. Right? So they're, they're hardly neutral in what, what impact it has. So have some of those studies been industry-funded then? Uh, no. Uh, uh, well, yeah, yes, there are studies that have been industry funded, mm. but there have been other studies as well that I think in hindsight weren't as rigorous as we are able to do the studies now. Right. And so I think we're finding additional information. So it's a combination of yeah. um, uh, now, for instance, World Health Organization is very clear that it's unacceptable to, to accept money from industry to conduct scientific studies where they have any say in the design or the the conduct of the study. Yeah. And if we move on to talk about alcohol as an addictive substance, so, Robert, can you please set the scene for us and tell us how is addiction to a substance defined? Well, the, there's an international classification of diseases which um, is developed by the World Health Organization and is used to classify all diseases, um, including alcohol dependence. And it really hangs on having two of three things occurring mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously within a 12-month period. Probably the most important one and the most easily recognised is impaired control. So even though you may know um, that it's causing you a problem, you still keep doing it. Mm. And um, that may or may not be associated with craving. So those are intrusive thoughts that you have that I have to have a drink. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. The second component is a priority setting. It starts to become more important to you than anything else that's happening in your life. And so you stop doing things that you would ordinarily do and it becomes more important to you. And the, th- the third aspect of it is um, tolerance, that you you need more alcohol to have the same effect than, than you used to have, so you're more tolerant to its effect. Or another way of looking at that is that if you don't drink, you go through withdrawal. You start right. to suffer from withdrawal. So you only need two of those. You don't mm. need to have a physical dependence. It could be 
that psychological aspect of either uh, impair control or uh, placing higher priority. But that's that's really the trifecta. If you've yeah. got two of those, uh, then you you've got enough. alcohol dependence. Yeah, yeah. And those same criteria, I guess, could be applied to things like smoking as well. Yes, and, and in fact, um, uh, WHO is now moving to also seeing behavioural addictions in a way oh, right. that is now recognised, so gaming disorders right, um, yeah. and uh, uh, gambling disorders now being seen as, um, as being recognisable similarities to uh, chemical dependence and alcohol being a, a, a prime example. And what is it about alcohol specifically that makes it potentially an addictive substance for some people? It's only about one in 10 who become addicted. Uh, so not everybody who drinks alcohol does, but some people are at greater risk of that. So we know that um, some people, uh, for some people, if you have a first-degree relative who has an alcohol dependency, that increases the risk, not the certainty, but it, it increases the, the risk. We know the earlier you start drinking, mm-hmm. the greater the risk of becoming dependent. Uh, we also know that there's a great social inequity, that the socially disadvantaged are more likely to end up with problems from alcohol. Uh, we know that people who have coexisting mental health disorders are more likely to become uh, dependent. Mm. And we know that uh, our First Nations people, even though they're less likely to drink alcohol, those who do drink are more likely to get into trouble. So there's there's a variety of reasons. Right, right. So what I'm hearing is there's definitely a genetic component for some people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a social component. And there's yep. um, the time you start drinking if you start earlier, yes. which goes back to an earlier comment you made about there was a thought that introducing alcohol earlier would turn you into a more responsible drinker, but that's no longer the case. Yes. What drives the social inequity in terms of being more likely to be become addicted to alcohol? Is it more available? What's the the issues there? So, so with social disadvantage brings a whole range of things: uh, a lack of skill sets in 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 skills of life. Mm. Um, but we also have less resource opportunities. If you think yeah. about the urban design. Uh, in socially disadvantaged uh, areas, that there's less recreational opportunities, Mm. less healthy lifestyles, less opportunities to be more inclusive in doing things Mm. that reduce the risk of exposure. Mm. So um, I think this is not an exercise in victim blaming. This is not not saying that that, um, uh, it's their fault. But uh, we know that um, as the poles of society go further apart, the two ends of the poles become at the greatest risk. So if you've got great excess, your risk of exposure to risk from substance use Mm -hmm. increase, 
And if you have social neglect, your risks are also increased. And also you are less likely to have access to help, I imagine, as well in those situations, if you're Knowing where to go for help and, and of course, your peer group influence that's uh, occurring about what becomes normative behaviour, about how you see the world. So mm. if you're if you're raised in a family which which has approval uh, for substance use that encourages it, or you've got intergenerational problems with substance use, these things transcend and then become yeah. seen as well. That's just the way things are. Yeah, it sounds like what um, we would classify probably as a wicked problem. It's really hard to find a solution. Mm. So. How does someone know if they or if a friend or family member has a problematic relationship with alcohol? What are some of the the warning signs? I think I like the four L's, um, liver, lover, livelihood and law. Liver represents health. You start to have health problems that that are easily attributed to, to alcohol. You start to have relationship problems. Uh, people people are picking on you because of the way you drink or what you're like when you've been drinking. Um, you may start to have problems with work. So you're missing work because of hangovers or your work performance is going off and you're starting to have troubles uh, uh, with your work. We have problems with the law and that might mm. be because of uh, violence or it might be drink driving. Um, there's a variety of, yeah. of risks that are there. <clears throat> but at a personal level, I think that we'll go back to what we talked to before, that you see the person's tolerance. They, they're the quick drinker. If you're in a social group, you watch people drink. People drink at different rates. Yeah. But people who are drinking heavily, quickly, they're the ones that are finishing and they're suggesting it's my turn, you know, or they might want to have a wedge so they'll have a drink in between everybody else's drinks, right? Or they wake up the next day and they have no recollection of what happened the night before. Now, we call that a blackout. Um, Mm. What's happened is that there's been so much alcohol circulating in their brain that the memory traces are gone, Bits and pieces of the night before just don't make sense. Well, they start making excuses for why it's appropriate that they are having a drink now. You know, mm. it's it's midday somewhere in the world. Yeah. And so it's okay for me to have an early drink or I've had a hard day and I, and 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 it will help calm me down. Well they, well, they drop out of their roles. They stop doing the things that you would normally expect them to do um, because drinking has taken over what's important yeah so those those would be i guess the 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 long list but the four l's cover a lot of that the brain is very clever you at one um level you probably realize that you have a problem but people are very good at making excuses to cover that up like i've had a hard day yeah Mm. and if, if if you've got a problem you become adept at hiding it yeah right and and uh, I guess clinically, one of the things that that I always ask is, you know, have people around you expressed concern about your drinking? Because your antenna's up. You think this isn't quite right. Mm. 
Mm. But the person who you're talking to, internally, they've got mixed feelings about what they're doing. They enjoy it, but they can see yeah. there are some problems. And it's that internal dialogue is going on, uh, but they're not prepared to share it with other people. Yeah. We've been talking about the effects of consuming alcohol when it becomes, when it tips over to becoming a problem or an addiction. So it would be nice to end our discussion by some positive um, messaging. So what can actually be done about it? And what are some of the things being done in the public health space to educate people about safe alcohol consumption? Okay, so we don't talk about safe, we talk about low risk. Low risk, okay. (laughs) Because because there is no safe level. The only safe level is don't drink at all. Um, And the the Australian government is launching um, an information campaign to raise awareness about the new uh, National Health Medical Research Council guidelines. And... um, my my view is that information campaigns are terrific at raising mm-hmm. awareness, but they do zero to change risk or harm. So all they do is just bring it into the public space for discussion. And there's a leaderboard of things that we know that do work, mm-hmm. and governments are often reluctant to engage in doing the things that do work. So... We know that the two biggest influences on how much people drink is price and availability. Oh, okay. So, so the more it costs, the less likely you are to drink to excess. Uh, we know mm-hmm. from tobacco cessation yeah. programs that the biggest change in tobacco rates in Australia, which is a massive public health success, was because the price of cigarettes went up. Um, liquor outlet density greatly increases the likelihood uh, of access and hence greatly increases the risk. Uh, we know that uh, alcohol advertising yep. shouldn't happen because mm. it encourages drinking. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we still have alcohol advertising during sporting events is a risk to young kids who yeah. are watching healthy lifestyle activities and associating mm. that success with drinking. Or with fast food, I might add in there too. There you go. But there are things that have been done which are successful. So a more aggressive uh, approach towards uh, preventing underage drinking in licensed premises. Uh, I think the industry has been uh, very much on the front foot in that regard about proof of identity. Mm-hmm. Um Stopping promotions which encourage irresponsible drinking. So the two-for-ones is something they've done as well. The Northern Territory government had uh, an experiment of introducing floor prices. So there's a minimum unit price. Uh, You think alcohol is expensive, but if you go to Dan Murphy's, you'll see you can buy a standard drink of alcohol for less than 30 cents if you buy it in casks. Mm. So... Um, the, the Northern Territory government introduced a floor price, which was a way of just increasing the minimum amount. Mm. And it was successful. It actually had a direct impact on the number of emergency department presentations, the number of arrests for police for assault, a variety of health outcomes, but uh, they abandoned it. So, In your opinion, why is that? If we have evidence that 
raising the price or perhaps taxing alcohol more would work. Why is the government reluctant to do it? Um, The general public. Okay. The The people who are listening to you right now need to agitate with their local member to say, do something. Because politicians reflect community views and attitudes. And, of course, anything that hits us in the hip pocket, yeah, okay. where uh, there's a disincentive. And, uh, and, of course, industry would give you the opinion that uh, it would make it totally unaffordable. But I don't think that uh, unit pricing or floor pricing is about that. It's about making it less likely that the great proportion of mm. people who drink don't don't get dependent. It's only one in ten. Mm. But the greatest harm to Australia isn't alcohol addiction. The greatest harm to Australia is the problems of intoxication. Yeah. So that's drink driving, uh, road accidents, uh, assaults, yeah. um, doing things that you didn't mean to do when you're intoxicated. Yeah. That's the thing that we could do something about. And another thing you mentioned um, in terms of the younger demographic being more diligent about proof of ID, but one thing I've noticed because I do have teenage uh, children is there are so many alcoholic beverages that are clearly, I think, targeted towards that age group. They're um, vodkas in pretty containers and so I think that it's it's a pretty tricky area. Um, I think that the alcohol industry, just this is just personal observation, is certainly in a way trying to target those younger people. Do you think that's true? Um, social media advertising is yeah. a clear indication that they're after younger age group and packaging alcohol in ways that are aesthetically pleasing yeah. and sweet is a way of encouraging young people into into the space. Yeah, uh, I like, guess that's the aim. If you get them in at a younger age, they're more likely to continue drinking as adults. Yes. As we do know, it is particularly risky for the younger population because their brains are still developing. That's right. Yeah, they're more sensitive to damage. There's no safe level of alcohol consumption, that's clear. But if someone were to start drinking, is there an age that's uh, more appropriate? The brain doesn't finish maturing until the age of 24. Mm. And so exposure before the age of 24 is exposing a toxic substance to a growing brain, which is going through a process of recrindling and rewiring. The last part of the brain that develops is the, the front of the brain, uh, the frontal cortex. That's the adult part of the brain. Mm. That's uh, where we uh, have organisation planning, memory, risk assessment, deciding what's a good idea, what's not a good idea. And up until then, the midbrain, which is the pleasure part of the brain, is usually what drives what we do. So we have poor impulse control. And if you think back to adolescence, all of that will have a resonance about that, you know, yeah, we did things and a little bit crazy, but but we just did them. Um, Girls' brains mature more quickly than boys' brains. Mm. Um, So uh, they tend to have that 
reason that adult part of the brain operating at a slightly younger age. The Americans, of course, don't allow drinking until the age of 21. We've reduced the age uh, to 18. Um, any attempt to move it back to 21 will be met with strident resistance. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the things that the evidence shows has an impact. Age of onset of use, the later you delay the onset of, of use, the less likely you are to have problems. Yeah. And these days, a lot of 18 year olds are still at school. It um, seems incongruous that they're in one minute in their school uniform and the next minute they could potentially be at the pub. And and we know that um, the 18 to 25-year-olds are in the top 25% of those people who drink very heavily. That's the 11-plus yeah. standard drinks on a single occasion. Half of the drink people in that age group do that. Yeah. So yeah. even though collectively they're less likely to drink, there is a risky group and if you're drinking 11 standard drinks, you are well and truly intoxicated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's that problem with, as an adolescent, you tend to think you're pretty invincible and, you know, these issues okay. happen to other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it never happened to me because because I'm okay and I know what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. I'm not that drunk. So if people would like to seek help um, for their relationship with alcohol, where can they go? What's available? Okay, so um, there's a national uh, uh, telephone number that people can call that would direct them to their local service. Um, and that, that number is 1-800-250-015. Okay, I'll and put that in the show so notes. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's that's a good number to have have on board. Um, in South Australia, it's thirteen hundred thirteen thirteen forty. But if you're national, then the national number makes sense. Um, we we have a site that we've developed at the University of Adelaide, which uh, allows people to do their own checkup to mm-hmm. check out whether or not they do have a problem. And we've got tips on how to reduce risk, how to cut down or stop using, how to decide what you want to do. So that's a website called assistplus, or one word, .com.au. Um, but there's there's uh, there's lots of uh, resources available uh, for people who want to just check out whether or not they do have a problem. Mm. There's, there's a most, uh, not most, all state governments have a site which helps people make an assessment. Uh, yeah. In South Australia, it's called Know Your Options, one okay. word. Great. Thank you. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Okay. That's probably a great place for someone to start because they might just want to find out for themselves if they're at risk first before they talk to someone else, you know. And and on our website, on the Assist Plus website, um, I give advice about how to raise the issue. If you're oh, concerned about somebody else, how to talk to somebody mm. so that it will be a productive conversation. So thank you very much for your time. And I'd like to wrap up. I just have to ask you this question. With all the knowledge that you have, about alcohol and its impacts on our health, 
What is your personal approach to consuming alcohol? Yeah, so um, my personal approach is to stay within the guidelines. Mm. Uh, you know, so I just uh, and and I've done <clears throat> just as many people in their twenties and thirties have done. I have disaggregated drinking and driving. Yeah. If I drink, no matter how much I've had, I won't drive. Yeah, I think that's a really sensible and easy approach to take because there's no decisions involved. The decision's been made beforehand. That's right. Mm, Yeah. And has the COVID pandemic impacted your work? Um, Immensely. We've had to pivot towards uh, teaching and training online. Um, So face-to-face contact has, uh, has changed. But those people who are emotionally vulnerable, um, uh, social isolation has greatly increased their risk. So in reach through telephone and video counselling has had to uh, take over. Um, so, yeah, COVID has, has had a significant impact. Yeah. And, Robert, who inspires you? Well, at the moment, uh, the people that are inspiring me are the the frontline workers dealing with COVID. You know, people who are basically putting their life on the line every day trying to help get us out of uh, an incredibly difficult situation that appears to have no end. Dealing with adversity when you know the duration of adversity is completely different to dealing with something where it, you don't know when the end is yeah. in sight. And the, the strength and the courage that they bring to do their work, I, I find truly remarkable. Yeah, I agree. The final question that I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? So I think number one is take time to just enjoy the simple pleasures of life that I think life is so busy and so hectic that we just get wound up with the humdrum Mm. and we don't take a moment to reflect. And the second is be kind to yourself. Yeah. Um, Just uh, take a moment to reflect on the things that you've achieved and you've done well because often what can happen is that we just focus on the things that weren't as we would have liked and that we wished we'd done differently, but actually... Being kind to yourself is actually incredibly important. That's really lovely advice and particularly poignant at the moment when um, the COVID pandemic has sort of disrupted and upended many of our lives. Robert, if someone wants to look at the work that you're doing, what is the best place for them to do that? At the University of Adelaide website, if Mm -hmm. they... um, There's a link there that shows all the work that I'm currently involved in. Excellent. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes and to all the other things that you mentioned, like the national telephone number for help and support. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Ali. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and to hear some of your insights about alcohol and how it affects our health, alcohol addiction, and what we can do when we need help and support. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, there was certainly some food for thought in that episode, and I do hope that you found it interesting and also informative. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, 
It'll help people find my podcast and I'm always really grateful for that. You can subscribe to Vibrant Lives podcast on all good podcast providers like Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and you can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast. If you'd like to contact me, the best way at the moment until my new website is launched is via direct message on Instagram. I'd love to hear any comments or suggestions that you may have. So thank you very much for tuning in today. Eat well, move well, think well.